Hey ho, Tudor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode five of our podcast. Every episode, Jesse will read from Time's Riddle, a story project we're working on. And after the reading, we'll take a dive into the history behind the story. Thanks for your feedback on the last episode, and we hope everyone will go over to the Tudor Time Machine's Facebook page. We're lucky to have such Tudor minded listeners. The last time we saw young Constance Stoner, she was at an illegal mass with Marion Nazareth. In this episode, it's the next morning, and Constance is making her move to the court of Princess Cecilia. So, Tudor-minded people, let's start the reading. Chapter 5, Bedford House, in which Constance sees a different side of royalty. Constance, with her maid Wynne in tow, followed a bleary page along the wide yard that fronted the mansion where the Princess Cecilia resided. The house was fitting for the London residence of an earl and the temporary home of a foreign dignitary. Red brick, rows of glass windows, and an ornate entryway, built facing the river on one side and the strand on the other, surrounded by gardens and a terraced walk. Taking Constance and Wynne through the front door, the page uttered a few unintelligible words and wandered off, abandoning them in a house that seemed to be asleep. The rooms looked as if a winter wind had whipped through them, leaving tapestries drooping off the walls, nicks in the wood panelling, spilled wine on the tables, and stools tipped everywhere. Constance found the stillness hard to believe. No one was rushing, no one was barking orders, no one was cleaning up, and that was an enormous task. The disorder was comical after her rigid life with the queen. She heard someone calling, Brigitta, Brigitta, and some insistent-sounding Swedish. Ah, said a lady, her entire body swathed in furs and cloaks. You are not Brigitta. I am Mistress Constance Stoner. Our princess's head is on the pillow. Come back and happiness will fill her to watch you. No, no, the the queen sent me, Constance said. I am to serve the princess. Oh, to serve. You then are she that has come to join our homehold? Household? Yeah, yes, household. A welcome to you, English mistress. The little lady gave Constance a kiss on both cheeks and clasped her hand in hers. She was the tiniest of does barely reaching above Constance's shoulder. Her smile took up most of her face, and she spoke her strange English with such conviction. Constance was charmed. I am Mistress Sigrid, Lady of Princess Cecilia Vasa. The very large white beings with the wings, have you seen these? I beg your pardon, Constance asked. Have you seen the beings? Sigrid urged Constance to the window. They are there on the river. Looking out, Constance laughed. I thought you spoke of angels. I had not seen the swans. In English, we say swan. Named with good sounds. Swan is a word fit for these poultry. Look what courage they have trying to swim through the ice, Constance said. Courage, repeated Siegfried. Weeping for them I was, bread I had, but I threw it at the beings, and now it is gone. Help me, we will get from the pillows the others, and all go to heat the ice, and 
to free the beings. Siegfried ushered Constance to a chamber, strikingly well-ordered in comparison to the rest of the house, where half a dozen bodies were still in bed. Siegfried introduced Dorodai, Valentine's daughter, who sat slathering a thick white paste over her face and neck. Assuming this was the senior lady of Cecilia's court, Constance inquired about her duties for the day. Constance was surprised when Dorodai answered, her English remarkable only for the throaty fluency with which it was spoken. We must dress ourselves and the princess and see what the day may bring, Dorodai said. Siegfried pointed around the room, speaking energetically in Swedish. Manners, Siegfried, you must use English, Dorodai reminded. They sleep, but the paltry swans swim in the ice and need helping by our ladies we are. Dorodai muttered something to Swedish in Siegfried and then said to Constance, The princess has spoken your language with us for almost two years now, but poor Sigrid, how she struggles. Even ours with a tutor did nothing for her. Sigrid pouted. A girl drew back her bed curtains and whimpered, Queen's lady, you will sleep with me. I would greet you, but I am very weak. How my limbs itch. I cannot rise. Constance greeted the news quizzically. Her itchy bedmate appeared to have lovely skin and good color. You look well, the girl's face fell. For one so besieged, Constance added. What strength you must have. A deep sigh escaped the girl in the bed. That is Brigitta, wiping the paste off, Dorodai added. Do you think I look younger? Yes, madam, Constance curtsied. You think, as I am the oldest here, that I am in charge? If I have offended you, madam, I, I beg your pardon, Constance said. In offences I have suffered, it is a small one. Dorodai turned back to her mirror. Dorodai, the new English lady has never seen you before. She does not know if you look younger or not. This girl, who introduced herself as Christina Gabriel's daughter, spoke from a stool where she was busy writing a letter at a small desk, balanced on her knees. Another Christina, this one Christina, Abraham's daughter, appeared and pulled aside the curtains of another bed, waking two other girls, Anna Joran's daughter and the infamous Elan Snakenborg. The princess's sister Elizabeth had her own quarters, Dorodai explained, as Christina, Abraham's daughter, left to attend her. Mistress Stoner. You must help us discover Thomas and St. John, the Earl of Bedford's ward. She is always spying, spoke Elan Snakenborg with the serpent smile she used when Constance had met her at the court on the arm of the Marquis of Northampton. Some said the old Marquis's desire for this girl Elan was based on her similarity to his dead wife, but Constance did not see it. The only way Elan resembled the Lady Marquis of Northampton was that they were both exceptionally beautiful and had a sunburst of curly hair. Constance remembered brushing and brushing the Lady Marquis's hair and how in the end it had come out in her hands in great clumps. She had cried with the sick woman over that hair. She hated the Marquis of Northampton for his shallow affection brought on by a questionable physical similarity to his dead wife. But... 
as she had now been thrown into the same household as this Elin, Constance thought it better to restrain her desire to judge the calculating jade. If Mistress St. John to herself, Elin, the Earl of Bedford is away, and Mistress St. John does not approve of us, Doradai said. Perhaps Mistress St. John will marry Bedford, Elin shrugged. Is Bedford another rich old widower you have your eye on? Doradai asked. The swans, cried Siegfried. You are not remembering of the swans. I am sorry, birdie, too loud. She kissed a parakeet that had perched on her shoulder. We must be fasting in the hurry. We must help the swans. Two hours later, a group finally assembled in the courtyard of Bedford House. The wind had abated and the pale winter sun was struggling to shine. Maids carrying extra gloves and wraps for the cold stood in attendance, and half a dozen servants carried loaves of bread for the poor bird's sustenance. Constance thought the swans would sink if they ate half of it. At last, the Princess Cecilia herself appeared, looking fine in black velvet and cloth of silver. She beckoned Constance to walk by her, and Constance, who had only seen her from a distance, was slightly stunned by the brightness of the princess's blue eyes and the face that radiated joy as she spoke. How much the queen must love me to send you, Mistress Stoner, whom she cherishes as her own child, Cecilia said. Come, take my arm and we will speak of your queen, your second mother. Constance knew she could not contradict this royal lady's delusion, but this level consequence should not be attributed to her. Most judicious, avoid the subject of Elizabeth, but meet Cecilia's enthusiasm. Constance said, Oh, princess, it is an honour to be in your presence, the greatest honour of my life. The greatest honour from one who has spent her life tete-a-tete with the wonderful Queen of England. How delightful you are! Cecilia swept Constance off with her arm around her waist. Thank goodness for the snow. If only there were more. Oh, the white flakes like sugar. How good they are for the skin. Do you think Bedford House suits me? Should Constance say no? Insulting English hospitality? Or yes, and risk insulting the princess? Such questions posed the possibility of an unpleasing answer that could lose a girl favour. Better to be trailing behind the great ones in the anonymous retinue, Constance thought. She said, The ladies who serve you, what kindness I find in them. Yes, yes, but tell me what it was to be a babe dangled on the knee of so great a monarch as Elizabeth. (gasps) Senor Guzman! Cecilia's attention swung to a group of riders trotting towards them. These noble men are a feast for the eye, are they not? Our winter gifts are the men from King Philip's court. Which is your favourite? Cecilia pulled Constance close as she asked the question. High on their horses, swathed in great capes and neatly bearded, all the Spanish looked handsome. The young one with the curls, Constance offered. Oh no, not him! Cecilia laughed. The tighter the curls, the smaller the knob. Senor Guzman dismounted. Cecilia hailed him. Bishop, it is such a delight to see you, sir, as if Apollo himself has graced us with his presence. 
And you, princess, rising out of the snow, the birth of a northern Artemis, Guzman said. It struck Constance that this Guzman's double life was infinitely more complicated than her own. Did he have the scrap of the virgin's cloak on his person even now as he played the flattering diplomat? No. Surely the precious object had been secreted away. Cecilia kissed Constance's cheek. You are well acquainted with Mistress Stoner, Bishop, the Queen's favourite maid. Inwardly, Constance died a death of shame. Guzman befriended Queen Elizabeth's inner circle. He knew the absurdity of the princess's introduction. Yet Constance crooked a curtsy, wobbling in the snow. Thankfully, Guzman only bowed, giving nothing away. Signor Bishop, what is King Philip's stratagem with these Spanish stallions he sends to Queen Elizabeth? Madame, you well know that stallions are for riding. Indeed, and how I envy Her Majesty having to choose which one to ride first. With Guzman to provide adoration, the princess once again remembered the swan mission. The twosome took centre stage, while Constance slowed her step. You are the light of the day, Mistress Stoner, Doradai said as she caught up. I am not even the light of the morning, Constance laughed. You wrong her. The princess will remember you with such pleasure at any moment and then forget you. But she has loyalty. You have been in her service a long while. Doradai was the lover of the Princess Cecilia's brother, King Eric, Elin piped up. Oh, I see, you must... "'Know each other very well, then,' Constance said, trying to sound worldly wise. "'Mistress Stoner, do you think royal families pass the evening, "'meeting each other's lovers and sharing daring tales?' Doradai teased. "'Of course not,' Constance stammered. "'I have no image at all. Our queen has so little family.' "'And no lovers?' Doradai asked. "'Lovers?' Constance said. I have never heard it. She is young, a a virtuous queen. All the women chorused in disbelief. Come now, I do not believe it. Your queen has an eye for men. Liking is she of male persons. She is keeping secrets. Pinching cheeks and asses when no one is looking. I say again, Constance insisted. I myself have no knowledge of the queen having a lover. Constance tried to speak over the other voices. Doradai said, Well, Sweden's king had many lovers, as royals who enjoy their fleshy life do. I was one that the king favoured, but then we were all cast aside for a slice of fakery. Karen Mann's daughter, Elan supplied. Oh, the big-eyed guile. You would take a lesson, Elan, if she gave them, Brigitte observed, and so would I. The man I admire does not even know I breathe. Karen Mansdotter is a peasant, a person who grinds rocks, Doradai grumbled. Our king is in love with Karen, Christina Gabriel's daughter insisted. They truly love each other, though Karen was but a servant. Doradai grabbed the girl by the shoulders and gave her a hard shake. Doradai, Christina wailed. Are you well now? A fit took you. Doradai said to Christina and turned back to Constance. Princess Cecilia is a woman of understanding. She knew my tale of woe at the hands of her fickle brother and took me into her service. 
a great kindness. Loyalty binds us, Constance said, thinking of her aunt. Not forever, Dorodai said. I will marry one of your English, a rich old man, a noble, and remain here. Do you know a gentleman to suit me? Dorodai, how could you jilt our Sweden? Anna Euron's daughter lamented. Mistress Constance, no grey country can rival our Sweden. Yes, said Dorodai. Sweden is light all of the time or dark all of the time. It is a country with a decisive mind. Regard the paltry free are now. Constance saw Siegfried was correct, insomuch as the sun had thawed some of the ice and the swans were swimming away. She saw Cecilia and Guzman, who were standing on the water's stairs. Signor, see the fortune I brought the birds. They have been freed by my approach alone, Cecilia said. Let us ride along the river bank. I will not be content unless I watch the swans floating along, their white plumes against the snow. There were not enough fresh horses for the entire party. Cecilia elected to take the earnest Siegfried and her sister, Princess Elizabeth. The other ladies were charged with an errand to Cheapside. Yet, Constance noted, that once the princess left, each maid of honour had her own business to attend. Dorodai and Anna to the apothecary, Elin to some rendezvous, Christina, Gabriel's daughter, and Siegfried to meet the post, and Brigitte was bent on returning to Bedford House, her concern for her itchy limbs had now turned to a boil she swore was rising on her tongue. Constance stood a moment, indecisive. Mistress Constance, you must go to Cheapside, Brigitte offered. You must, said Dorodai. Our princess desires rooms at the Arundel Inn. Is that not where all the nobles go to enjoy themselves? Indeed, Mistress Constance, you must make the arrangements. You know the city. We could not do it. In Elizabeth's court, passing along jobs of this kind usually came with payment, but as this was Constance's first day, she decided to be amiable. She only nodded. Where is the inn? St. Lawrence Lane. You cannot possibly miss it, Dorodai assured her. Take this purse. There is money for the rooms. You are to give it to the innkeeper. The princess will give more when she comes herself. Cheapside is quite a distance. Constance said. I may not return until this evening. The princess will not care in the least, Dorodai assured her. Wow, the ladies of Cecilia's court. You know, as a Tudor fan, I find it amazing that before doing this research, I had never heard of Cecilia or the ladies of her mm -hmm. court. And they're all incredibly fascinating characters. And they did so many interesting things. They took this crazy trip, and they did all learn English when they came here. Right, and they made a, actually a really big impression on the people at the time, so it's surprising that we haven't heard about them more. I mean, all these contemporary sources comment on how well they spoke English, how beautiful they were, and, you know, they, they made this sort of wonderful entry into London in these black velvet gowns with silver and... You know, they were really quite something. So we know Cecilia did bring at least six ladies with her, and we know the names of five of them, the two Christinas, Anna, Brigitta, and Elin. So we decided to add Dorodai as the sixth. Um, Dorodai was a real person, and she was a lover of Prince Eric's, um, Cecilia's brother, but we don't know if she was with Cecilia in England. 
we just brought her. But Eric did actually end up marrying the serving girl, Karen, that they talk about in this episode. And he made her his queen consort. And they did not like it. (laughs) They did not like it. Actually, Elizabeth would not have liked it either. That kind of thing was considered, you know, it wasn't considered open-minded or democratic. It was just wrong because your class meant something very important. And... Elizabeth took these roles very seriously, and she was very strict with her ladies. And Cecilia was a little more lax. Yes, Cecilia and Elizabeth were very different. But it's interesting because Cecilia's father, Gustav Vasa, and Henry VIII were kind of similar in a lot of ways, even though their daughters were very different. So Gustav didn't listen, like listening to other people the way Henry didn't. Um, Gustav also broke with the Pope at almost exactly the same time as Henry VIII did, and he led a very similar kind of reformation in Sweden that Henry led in England. Well, perhaps they were tired of listening to the Pope, or perhaps more practically, they both stood to make a lot of money by taking lands away from the monasteries. Because, like Henry, Gustav didn't want to share money with the church. Right, and Gustav certainly became very rich. Sweden was a wealthy country at this time. And his son, Eric, inherited all that wealth. And Elizabeth was certainly happy to accept a lot of gifts and money from Eric when she was pretending to decide whether or not to marry him. It was amazing how Elizabeth was able to play the marriage game with different suitors for literally her entire reign. Yeah, years and years. They still thought she was going to get married, even at the end. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a little sentimental, but... Sometimes I like to think that she really was in love with Sir Robert Dudley and didn't want to marry anyone else. But then I think kind of practically, maybe she just didn't want to have sex and die in childbirth like half the women in England did at the time. It's impossible to know what she really thought. And I don't think it was a plan. I don't think she, you know, inherited the throne and thought, well, I'm never going to get married. I'm going to just keep this throne for myself. I think that over time she saw it working, she was able to get money, she was able to keep power, and also keep everyone guessing, which was good for her. It's true, but she also kept the question of who was going to succeed her in limbo, and that did hurt her sometimes. But, you know, I understand the hesitation to subject herself to a husband, not to be sort of modern and psychobabbly about it, but, you know, her father did have her mother executed brutally (laughs) yes yeah and also if she got married that husband would have a certain amount of authority over her and she did not want that right so let's talk a little bit about what these swedish ladies might have thought of this uh, english hospitality they were getting in london so i don't know I, i mean obviously we don't know if the swedish retinue liked staying at bedford house or if they thought it was beneath them or if they would have preferred to stay at court. But the Earl of Bedford did offer his house to to Cecilia Vasa. I mean, he probably offered it to gain favor with the Queen, but he ended up regretting it because Cecilia apparently trashed it by throwing all these wild parties. No, and I'm sure it was beautiful, as you said, more beautiful than the cells at court. And it was in the most high-end location. There was a whole group of great houses just outside of the palace on the Strand. The Cecils lived right next door, and Robert Dudley's London house was just down the street. 
all those houses edged the river because going by water was the quickest way to get around. So that was another bonus. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these houses were much nicer than the rooms at court that we talked about in the last episode. I think about a person like Constance going to live with these people from another country. I mean, it would have been so nerve-wracking for her because we we have exposure to other people and other, uh, you know, and what we consider sort of foreigners in these urban centers that we live in. And even if we don't live in a big town, we, we see movies, we see people on the internet, we see so many different kinds of people. And Constance would be coming from, a, from Oxfordshire and have zero exposure to anyone who wasn't exactly like her. And I don't think there was any idea that you should learn from people of another culture or maybe even be curious about them. You thought the English did things the right way. Yes. So when Constance sees Guzman and Cecilia talking, it would have been mind-blowing. Yeah, to see two foreigners being foreign together. Yeah, that's actually one more thing I wanted to talk about just briefly, because in this chapter, when Guzman and Cecilia flatter each other, they do it by um, kind of harking or hailing each other as Greek gods. So we were sort of tapping into this idea at the time that you could be religious. I mean, obviously, Guzman is a bishop, but you could still be sort of seeped in like classical mythology and, you know, that kind of language of, of that that era was very much informed by the classics and that was sort of showing your education. Yes. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. I hope that you will come on over um, to our Facebook page. Right. Leave us a comment and remember to listen for the next episode of Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.